Paul, in writing to the Romans, and in chapter 8, again reminds us a little bit of what we have in Christ Jesus. And ours is thinking of that tremendous high cost of what we call the free gift that God has shown upon us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and following. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, whom is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Verse 29, spend a little bit of time, we will look as we go along. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's a high cost in what God has done for us with the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. But there's also a high cost that we have and our being conformed to the image of his Son is going to require a sacrifice and a commitment on our part if we desire to be more like God along the way. We know that we have this gift of God. Romans six twenty three reminds us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, and some translations have the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But there's that reminder to us, that gift of God is eternal life that is offered to all of humanity. And so there's a requirement on our part if we decide to receive that good gift. Something is going to be expected of us. If there's not, then all are going to be saved. He died for all, but not all will be saved. And those who desire to be saved have to make a commitment that is a high cost from the eyes of the world, if you will, of denying ourselves and taking up that cross and following him. Paul reminds us in the Galatian letter, 
In chapter 2, in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. There's a commitment, is it not? That's a high commitment. You have been crucified. You, as an individual, have been put to death to be with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a challenge that we have on our part of understanding that we've made a commitment to him and that we have been crucified and we no longer live. It's Christ who is to be living in us. That changes the life we live. That changes the perspective that we have. That changes the commitment that we make. The commitment is not made for us to live a different type of life. The commitment is made to live a life that would be pleasing in the eyes of God. To take up that example of Christ. Out of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, who did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was willing to empty himself. That's a commitment. That's a high cost. You no longer live. That's a high cost. You've died. You no longer live. And so we have to be reminded of that in order to do the things that would be pleasing to God. That's a desire that you've already made or commitment that you've made. I want to be Christ-like. I want to be in this world as Christ was in this world and his desire was to do the will of the Father who sent him. The works that he did were not his works, but the works of him who had sent him. The words that Jesus spoke were not his words, but they were the words of the Father that the Father gave to Jesus to speak while he was here on this earth. The desire was not his. The desire was to please the Father, to do the things that the Father had asked of him, and then be willing to make that sacrifice. We make that sacrifice when we decide to become that child of God. We made a commitment that our desire now is to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. That changes perspective. That changes life. That changes how we view things and why we do things. Like the life we live as a child of God, the sacrifice that we make in being a child of God as opposed to living in the world, the commitment that we make to one another to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to provoke one another, to love and good works. It's not ours, it's what God has asked us to do. There's not a choice in that matter, if you will, if we decide we want to be pleasing to the Father in heaven. We gave that choice up when we decided to give our lives to God, to put on a new life, and then to live that life, not for our will, not for our pleasure, not for our desire, not to do the things that are in this world that, are, that really do not interfere or they do interfere that we make allowances for that, to do the things we want to do in the world. We do not have that choice. 
The commitment is to God. That's a high cost. I'm to do His will. That's a high cost. I've laid aside what I want to do to do His will. And to do it not out of obligation, but to do it out of love. The Son came to this world not out of obligation. He came to this world because He loved us. And He wanted to do what would be best for us. So the service we render to Him is not out of obligation. I'm here because I'm obligated to be here. I'm here because I'm expected to be here. Am I here because I choose to honor the Creator, to honor the Savior, to honor the one who gave me His Word to guide me through this life, and it's out of love. Selfishness is gone. And it is that desire wanting to do those things that were pleasing to God. We want to be free, but there's a cost in being free. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. It's an impossibility. There's an obligation in whatever it is. We're reminded there's only two masters. A God or a Satan. That's it. There's only two masters. You are, you, we are a servant of one or the other of those. And no man can serve two masters at the same time, for either he will hate the one and cleave to the other, or he will despise the one and cleave to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches or Satan in that line. You have to choose. And when you made the choice, that's a high cost. I'm no longer mine. I belong to God. I'm His. The things I do is because that's what God wants me to do. The life I live is a life that would be pleasing in His sight. The attitudes that I have, the emotions that I express are those that come from God that would be pleasing to Him. That changes how I view things, changes how I want to live my life, changes the associations I choose to have. It changes the attitude towards the fellowship that we have towards one another. The cost. Well, I like, I prefer, I think. It would be better in my opinion. Those are not the attitudes or the words or the expressions of a child of God. It's what would God be pleased with? And how can I best change my life to please Him? And how can I work together with brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that would please God and do the things that were pleasing in His sight, that bring honor and glory to Him? That as the world looks and sees our life as foolishness in one sense, but in another sense as they look at your life, as Jesus described in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, you are a city that is set on a hill. You're a light to the world. And that's that reminder to us as we look around in this world. I remember when I first came to Cedar Hill and I was told that as I travel about, if I'm over in Dallas and it gets dark and I get lost, it says, just look for the towers. Look for the light. The light will guide you home. 
And if you come down Lake Ridge, coming towards home, it's an interesting thought to consider as you're doing that. The last part of the lake as you cross the lake, you're looking at those towers and they're, they're this way. And you're reminding yourself by the time you pass those towers, you're going to be on this side of them. <laughs> the road is going to change. But you've got the guide. I'm just simply saying that light is seen by a greater distance. And we are reminded periodically that the world does watch us. And I remind ourselves along the way, remind me that those in the darkness can see the light of far, farther away that you in the light can see into the darkness. You cannot see in that darkness who's watching you. But you can be assured that those that are in the darkness can see that light. And wherever that light goes, they can follow that light. And whatever that light does, they're drawing conclusions upon whom you believe indeed who is the master of your life. If they see fellowship with God's people and you're not there, they, they draw conclusions. We make choices. But the choices are made not on my whims or my desires or my hopes. They're made on the word of God. God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son to die for my individual specific sins as well as for the sins of the world. It's a high cost. It's a high cost. And the cost for me, it seems high at the time. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. It seems like a high cost. But in comparison to what God has done, it's not. In comparison to what God gives as a result of my denying myself, taking up that cross of self-denial, the blessings that come as a result of that far excel anything that I gave up or anything that the world has to offer in exchange for that life, that life of self-sacrifice to God. Am I committed to that? Committed to that? Is that a driving ambition within my life? That I cherish that relationship? That I choose to strive to live in such a way that it would bring honor and glory to God? Again, we have people right here in our community that watch your lives. You run across them periodically and say, Oh, I know so-and-so. I know the type of life they live. And for the most part, it's been a positive response back, just to let you know. Uh, but I'm simply saying, they're watching, they're observing. Again, how do you react when things seem, as the expression goes, to go south? How do we respond to the attacks of, against us as being narrow-minded, illegalistic, as being intolerant of those who would oppose what we believe and teach and practice as we find directed within the pages of God's word. We're against all religious bodies. 
that are not in harmony with the will of God? How do we respond? And how do we encourage them to honestly look and to make a change in their life? The problem Jesus faced, was it not, when he came to this world? He came to his own and what? His own did not receive him. He came to save his people and they would reject him. They would mock him. They would ridicule him. They would persecute him. And they would kill him for his teaching the truth, standing by what he believed in order to do the things pleasing to the Father. Go on in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He gave his life. He talks about that in the gospel. No man takes my life. I give it freely. They're not taking my life. That's what the disciples were wanting to prevent from happening, was it not? They did not want to see their master taken and crucified. And he had to remind them that's not the case. I came to this earth for this purpose. They're not taking my life. I am giving it of my own free will to do the will of the Father. And they're not taking our life. That comes down to it. We're doing in the will of the Father. And as the one that we are to be imitating, if we lose the physical life here, when Jesus was risen on that third day, he ascended back to where? He went back to his Father. Sits at the right hand of the throne of God, now making intercession on our behalf. But he went back to the Father. If we give our lives to the Father and we lose our physical life here, one day we're going to be raised to go where? Home to the Father. Does that dwell in our hearts? Does that burn within us? Is that a consideration we meditate upon to think about in, in our lives? Again, to help us as we face trials here, overcome the temptations that are placed before us and try to put them into proper perspective? Do I draw the strength from God that says, listen, there's not a thing that you face in this world that you cannot overcome. I have that promise from God. God will not allow us to be tempted above. Satan does attempt you, but God will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able to bear. And with every temptation, will provide that way of escape that we may be able to endure it. I need that. I need to be reminded of that as I face the trials in the world. Sometimes, sometimes I think of it later. And I need to think of it more often before. Have that on my heart and in my mind. Whatever it is that I face. I mentioned at times, you know, Jesus says, you know, don't fear the one who can kill the body, not touch the soul. I'll tell you the one who the fear. Fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Don't fear the one who can kill the body. God gave us a mind. God gave us imagination. And I have a vivid imagination of what I think man can do. I read enough in history to know what he has done already. And with the, the, the new things that they've come up with, I can think of all kinds of things that do not sound pleasant at all of what man can do. But then I'm reminded, he can only touch the physical body. That's all he can touch is the physical body. 
And outside the Lord coming again, the thing that I do know for certain, every physical body is going to die. We just want to choose how that's going to be. And what have we found out? We don't have that choice. <laughs> Most cases, we do not have that choice. It comes however it may be. So what difference does it make how? Well, to so the physical body, it makes a world of difference. Spiritually, it does not make any difference. And what's more important, physically or spiritually? Spiritually, it does not matter what man does to the body. As long as he cannot touch the soul. And that's a hard lesson to learn. You read about the prophets of old. You read about the Christians in, in Hebrews chapter 11, a great chapter on faith. Read the latter verses, verse 35 through the remainder of the chapter. and Read that and look at it. These people are described back in verse 16 in that area that these are the people of God and God is not ashamed to call them his brethren. He's not ashamed to call them his people. Some of them were sawn in two. Some were fed to wild animals. Some traveled about in the desert. Some were destitute. Some were hungry. Some were thirsty. But they were God's people. And they're described in the positive life. God has prepared a place for his people. And that's not here. That's in heaven. He's prepared a place for his people. And if he's prepared a place for his people, as you read through the scriptures, he has also promised that as you make that sacrifice of leaving the world of sin and becoming a child of God, and you're going to begin to serve God, God has made the promise to you that as you begin that walk, he is with you until the end. You're going to go through as we perceive it as ups and downs. We're going to have good moments. We're going to have bad moments. We're going to have periods of time when we wonder what in the world has happened. Where is God in all of this? He's always there. Sometimes people ask, Why, where was God when my child died? And I tell them he was, he's in the same place he was when he watched his child die. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forsaken us. He's still with us. He sustains us. He uplifts us. He's our source when we don't even realize that he is our source. We have gotten through things and will get through things by the grace and the mercy of God and his strength that we do not see at the time we go through those. But as we have that privilege of looking back, to see the handiwork of God, to see how he's moved and how lives have intertwined and where people came into our life at a particular time when it was needed. Where the things have taken place were in that time when it was necessary. And there are times when we're taxed, it seems, in what we're going through. But oftentimes those are the times that God is allowing us to be tested. Where is your faith? Are you serving God only when things are good? We petition God in our prayers and 
often said, you know, you need to think about what you're praying for. Lord, I need patience. I need patience right now. I need patience before I face the trials and the tribulations. But as I read Hebrews 4 and verse 15 and 16, it's in the hour of need that God gives us what we need. It's in the hour of need. But if we're wanting patience, how do we believe patience is going to come? I said before, and I prayed for patience, and God gave me three children. I quit praying for patience. Well, then he found another thing to work on, to, to give me the work. I uh, called the Dallas traffic to, to work on patience. I'm simply saying, what you pray for? How is it going to come about? I want a stronger faith in God. How do you believe that's going to come about? I want a deeper love for God. How do you believe that's going to come about? The trials, the tribulations, as we view them, as we respond to them in the way that the scriptures describe, they strengthen us. They encourage us so that we can encourage others along the way. So that indeed, one day, is that not what we're striving for as a congregation? Is that not what we're striving for as individuals within this congregation? One day, to have lived a life trusting, depending on God, doing His will from a full heart, full assurance that He's with us, so that one day you can hear that, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Song we sing sometimes. Heaven surely will be worth it all. We live our lives sometimes saying, you know, when I get to heaven, here's some questions I want to ask God. I want to know the whys of certain things within my life. I believe heaven is worth whatever we've gone through here. And when we get to heaven, that reward is so great. What happened here is pales in comparison, and it really does not matter. I've used the expression, and I tell you again, I do not know what happened on that day. But when I get to heaven, I do not need to be asking God, why did you let this happen to me on July 15th of 1968? Does it really matter? What lesson were you trying to give to me on that day? Does it really matter? Whatever it was, guess what? It's in the past. There's nothing I can do to change that. Prayerfully, I learned that whatever it was. I, I learned a lesson and I moved on. Life, life is a lot better than... Living in the past, the present has got to be precious. Because everywhere I look, everywhere I see, whatever I hear, I hear the voice of God. I love you. My son died for you. The Spirit in His Word guides me. I got a home for you in heaven. 
And how many times have we encouraged one another? Just hang on. Just keep that faith. Then it's more than just hanging on. God gave us a life, gave us an abundant life to be lived fully. Let's strive to live that life and do the things that God would be pleased with. It's a sacrifice, great cost. But for us, is it really? Was it a great cost to leave a world of sin, to become a child of the living God, and to do the things that would be pleasing to God in light of what he has promised to give to you one day? That's not a great cost. That's a great reward. That's a great reward. I'm no longer held accountable for what I've done in the past, the sins I've committed, because as I repented of them and confessed them, they are forgiven and remembered by God no more. That's a blessing. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. I've got a great life to live right now. And whatever I have in the future, he is with me each step of the way. And at the end of this world, there is a reward, as I say, that is out of this world. What more do you want than what God has to offer to you day by day? That choice is yours. The question is, why do you wait? Why do we wait to accept what God has to offer to us through his son, Jesus Christ? Why do we wait to accept the blessings he gives to his children and the hope that he extends to us? Why do we wait for what God can give? There's danger and there's death and delay. Do not delay if the life is not where it needs to be. Do not delay if we've let the world begin to creep in and to pull us away from the love of God and for the fellowship of the saints. Do not delay. Don't wait any longer. The hope we have is his forgiveness and anticipation of what he shall give. It's for the faithful child of God. As you look at your life this evening, is it where it needs to be? Or is there a need for you to make a change within your life? And if we could assist you, if we could help you in any way, then indeed we bid you to come as together we stand and sing.